sermon. So I'm really glad we've got quite a few weeks here this morning because this is the week that marks the beginning of Lent. So the Lenten season starts about 40 days before Easter, and it's a season when the global church uh, enters into a time of like readiness and preparation when we are just like preparing ourselves to remember the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And so this morning what we're going to do is we're going to touch on the meeting of Lent, and then I'm going to go for some of the various practices that are associated with it. Um, and I've got the booklet and some things back there on the table that I'll explain to you. We'll have a few things to take home. So let's officially begin on Ash Wednesday, which is this Wednesday. And uh, we are invited this Wednesday night, if we would like to, we can join our friends over at St. Clair's at this bullet and we share a building. You can join them for their service between uh, 6 and 7 p.m. There's also going to be, they call it Ashes to Go, out here in the church parking lot between 7 and 9 a.m. So all I think all he has to do is just drive up around the circle. Reverend Dan will be out here. You can roll down your window. It will count about put the ashes on your forehead. That's something you'd like to do to live or work at Ann Arbor, maybe underway to work. Um, now, I didn't grow up observing Lent. And so for those of you who also didn't grow up observing Lent, it's called Ash Wednesday because this is the time together where we're just marking our a basic back to our existence. And that is our mortality. Right? Something that's not usually that fun to think about. But we can find some comfort in acknowledging it together as we receive the imposition of ashes on our forehead. It's usually put there in the shape of the cross. And when somebody does that, when one of the priests or the pastor does that, they usually say something like, remember you are dust, and to dust be showered to her. And so traditionally, those ashes uh, come from the burning the palm fronds from last year's Palm Sunday service. I had a hard time like, getting around this with like, my hand gestures. And now I'm going to be it. I'm going to do this. But usually you take the palm fronds uh, for Palm Sunday, and you do that because on Palm Sunday, it's when the time when we remember Jesus' last trip into Jerusalem on the week of his death. Right? So the palms are meant to help us remember Jesus' death, even as we are remembering our own on Ash Wednesday and to connect those two things together. And so the ashes are usually mixed with some oil. When I did that in the past, I mixed it with olive oil. I almost started a fire in the last church that I was in, but a whole different story. But it's usually just olive oil, and then that's what it's seared on the forehead. So you'll see people going around town um, with you know ash crosses smeared on their foreheads, usually at work or school. And so Lent begins with remembering death and that it ends on Easter with the hope of resurrection, right? So it's the part of the church calendar that's meant to be like a journey of renewal that we go through every year together. It's also a season where a lot of Christians practice self-denial. And so fasting has long been a part of the tradition. And you might hear various people say, oh yeah, I gave up, you know, something for Lent. I gave up sugar, or I gave up meat, or I gave up social media. You might have done that before. And it's the reason that Mardi Gras exists, right? Fat Tuesday. Dago be Kapuchbeek, right? On Tuesday. It's always a Tuesday before Ash Wednesday because people wanted to party and wanted to eat and to drink before the time of giving things up arrived. So I usually say, give something up if it's meaningful to you. Um, but nobody hears him think you're like a lesser Christian if you don't do that. So one year, when I was a pescatarian, I was a pescatarian for many, many years, and I was like, okay, for what? I'm gonna go vegan and I'm at utterly field. <laughs> I'm so unhappy. My roommates were like, please just have some milk. Uh, I said, two or three weeks, that feel good to fail with it, right? So I would say, if you're gonna give something up, maybe do something up that's challenging, but not so challenging, maybe fail. 
Um, if you come from a Catholic background, like my wife does, you might have given up eating meat on Fridays. And that seems like a fairly reasonable thing. Mostly fish, though, right? Fish fries, Catholic fish fries. Um, that seems reasonable. I would say, if you do choose to, to fast from something food, I would, I would encourage you to do a caution with it. So I'll tell you just a little story. When I was in my mid-20s, I was kind of an intense young woman. Um, so I did this. <laughs> I did have this thing to read. It's good. Sort of 45 list they can glee. Yeah. I know. It was like 20 years ago, the beast I did this 40-day fast for Lent. And I didn't eat anything except at dinner and like it was like at 6 p.m. I myself had a whole of rice and some vegetables. And at the last thing, I was working at orders at the corporate office. I was working at Punk Cochise and Marketing. And I think it was the Thursday before Easter, I almost cast out at work. And I remember I went into my, my boss, post the prince with a lovely agnostic woman. And I was just like, I just want you to know I might cast out. This is why. It's nothing serious. I probably just eat food. And she took her bowl of like Easter candy, just started unwrapping. It's like, like, for goodness sake, just eat something. What are you doing? So bad back. Don't do that. Just do my Don't be there. There's nothing magical about fasting. Um, it also, that recommend metabolism for ember, and, and, uh, and that's not a great thing to do. I must say, I had a friend for who, you know, like fasting as a teenager led to an eating disorder. But that, you know yourself, if you're kind of taking things to extremes, it's maybe best to skip this discipline. Just don't do it, right? It's just a small reminder of our dependence on God. As an alternative, um, six weeks happens to be about the time for admitted takes to establish a new habit. So some people will find it meaningful during Lent to use these six weeks to just reorient a behavior in a way that's going to be a little bit healthier for you and that helps you thrive, right? So that might be a good substitution. So for example, you want to like take more lots, take the short daily walk every day during Lent, or if you want to incorporate a gratitude practice, maybe start your day with your coffee or tea or whatever you drink and name something that you're thankful for. Because sometimes working and you have it into an existing structure could help it be a little bit more long-standing. So it's something easy and sort of low-hanging. So fasting and prayer are the two main disciplines for Lent. And if you'd like to get into a little bit more habit of praying, I put together a few meditations here that were based on our last sermon series. And so what I did, you could pick this up. There's like a round table in there, so you could pick this up on your way out. I'll also sit it via PDF on Tuesday. And I've offered some, some meditations, and it's basically just a three-step practice that you could use every day. It could last between three minutes and 10 minutes. So it's really flexible depending on how much time you have in the mornings. So the first step is just reading an opening prayer. The prayer was written by um, a pastor named uh, Howard Thurman, whose book, Jesus and the Disinherited, we used many years ago as our sermon series. And that's when I discovered this prayer. I think it's a lovely one that we will use together later in our meditation. The second step was just it's like a choose your own adventure. And so I created five different meditations that are based on the different metaphors that we've been learning about God in our last sermon series. So God is the place, God is the rock of my heart, consuming fire, cloud, and becoming. So on that table back there also in the notice I bought enough candles that everybody could take home a little candle, they're unscented, and a whole bunch of different locks. And those were incorporated into these um, different meditations, or should I don't really like to meditate, Maybe you just want to take a rock and carry it around, and that can be a reminder that that is the rock of your cart through Lent. When I bought the candles of the rocks, I was like, oh, the kids are going to want some of these too, right? And 
So I was like, okay, I'll make a little, I'll make a kid's version here. And this one's laminated, so make it, she want it and do whatever they need. <laughs> Molly, our new uh, children's pastor, helped me make it a little more concrete because I'm not always as good at that. So they could take a candle and a rock and then there's a daily prayer for them as well. So if you've got kids, feel free to pick up the kids thing on your way out as well for food. The sermon series, we're going to be delving a little bit deeper mm-hmm. into the world behind and around Jesus, just to help us get a little bit better understanding of the context in which we lived and taught. On Good Friday, we're gonna have another joint service with St. Clair's. So as you know, we share a building with a Jewish congregation as well. And Good Friday is a particularly sensitive holiday. And so Reverend that St. Clair and I were trying to figure out what we could do to pull the service outside the building. And so it looks like what we're gonna be doing is some kind of a walking service um, with some stations of the cross type of prayers. So uh, let me know if that's something that you would be interested in doing. And then Easter, we just have our, our regular show base of this year, our celebration. It's the one type of year when we do full immersion baptism. And so I like to say we are an equal opportunity baptizer. We rather spit into baptisms, um, do dunking, adult baptisms, sprinkling. If you were baptized as an infant or younger in life and you want to renew that baptism with a full immersion one, I'm happy to do that. Different people find different spiritual meanings in the sacrament of baptism, and so I think that there is a myriad of meanings that are holy, and we'll talk about that a little bit closer into Easter. What we do is we, we blow up a, like one of those cohortable hot holes. We're classy here. <laughs> I feel that we do actually warm it up overnight, so it's not like super cold. It's actually pretty good. Um, and it's a real season of celebration. Betsy Salzman, who is over there, has taken our Easter portraits for individuals, friends, families, every year out there. And it's been really cool to look back on some of the old ones, too, and just see like, how people look, what the have grown out, that people have changed. See that 11 Easter egg hunt and look at Easter really well. So those are kind of the bells and whistles of the wind. I'm just like, we've got a, a pre-wind sermon that I wish I had to do that kind of goes through like all of the different things. But with that, I'm going to back up a little bit and just briefly revisit the practices of prayer and fasting because those are so intertwined with Lent. And those practices are meant to help us just really recenter around the Creator, but in Lent they're also traditionally meant to help us engage in a season of repentance. And this is where I thought it might be helpful to give a little bit of a framework for how I think about things like sin and repentance for us here at Revolution. To see, repent just means turn around, stop doing what you were doing. I sometimes have people say to me, um, especially from evangelical or Catholic background, that being able to talk a lot about sin at this church. And I usually say, yeah, that's, that's true, and there's reasons for that. Um, and when we do talk about it, I tend to talk about it a little bit differently. I, I could be gymphosis on a different salop. Right, so we just offer a couple of thoughts about this. First is that the word sin in our culture is laden with all kinds of baggage, depending on your background where you're coming from. I usually don't use it. I mean, we use it the Lord to prayer in places where it's appropriate. I tend to talk about sin a little bit differently. I talk about it as anything that causes disconnection with God, with ourselves, with other people, with the creation, right? With things that get in the way of us thriving and being able to live the best lives that we can to be the kind of people that we want to be. If you've been around a while, that kind of language will probably sound simpler to you. So that's how I talk about sin, as I talk about it as disconnection. I think there's a lot of room for nuance in that because not everybody is disconnected in the same ways or affected by the same things. Um, I also think it's not a perfect definition. 
but I think it's a little bit more helpful and relatable. Um, personally, I don't know about you, but like the background I come from, I tense up a little bit when I think about pastors and must say to them a little bit. So I think it, it reframes the conversation a little bit um, from coming across as sounding like you're a bad person, you know, you need to choose this or that. You're not a bad person. I think you're a good person. I think God created us good. I think it centers the conversation a little bit more of like, what's not helping me thrive in my life? Right? Like, what's getting in the way? Second thing is we have to differentiate between personal sin and systemic sin or communal sin. Right? Our culture is highly individualistic. Right? We are taught to just assume that things mean something in the personal. Right? Like, you're sinning. Oh, that means me personally. But the Bible wasn't written in cultures like ours or two cultures like ours in modern America. Sin was almost always talked about in communal terms, in ways that like societies or systems cause disconnection and harm. It's less about the need for personal repentance and forgiveness, and it's more about the whole. Right? So the flavor of the Hebrew Bible is a little bit more like you as a collective group, maybe America, have neglected taking care of the vulnerable and the widows and the orphans. You've neglected caring for foreigners. And by the way, neglecting the vulnerable is going to lead to inequality and dissatisfaction and weakness among your people. Stop doing it. Or, Vincent has talked about, it's sometimes it's naming the systemic oppressions that the Hebrew people were suffering under, right? which can be really validating for people who are suffering from unjust laws and cultural biases. Right? So like, personally, I find it really validating to use a word like sin to describe like, anti-LGBTQ laws or to use the word sin to describe racist systems, right? It, it's not that personal sin doesn't exist in the Bible, it does. And I would say, of course, God is cheering us on to make choices that help us thrive in our relationships with people around us. And I think that God helps us and guides us to grow in our relationships in that way, especially when we are asking for it. That's part of a healthy spiritual journey, right? Letting the Spirit help us figure out where we're missing the mark so we can make changes in our lives that can help us be happier and healthier, because that should be the goal of a faith path, right? To be happier and to be healthier. In my experience, there's a heavy emphasis on the idea of personal sin in a lot of American Christianity. And so many of the people who come to our church, including many of you, you've been told that you're like terrible sinners your whole lives. I can't tell you guys how many times I went up to an altar as a kid, to repent for my myriad sins and to beg God to cleanse me because I was told that I had become dirty. And I didn't find that helpful, either to my psyche or to my spirituality. And it's not that I want the kids and the youth who attend our church to experience. Um, I'm gay. You have a notice to go up your congregants. Many of us have a lot of spiritual trauma that's associated with being told that the way we love is sinful and made to feel bad about ourselves. If you grew up in the purity culture, regardless of whether or not you are queer, you probably carry some sort of shame baggage from that. And I don't even want to name what those things are because I don't want to name the negatives from the pulpit. But I will say that when the Apostle Paul wrote his letters in the New Testament, he addressed them to the saints. Right? Not dear sinners, dear saints. You see, the emphasis is different. I might preach different if I were in a church filled with a lot of really, really rich, privileged people. That might be different, but that is not us. In a church filled with people who have been oppressed and battered, it does not make sense to me to emphasize dear sinners. We need to emphasize that regardless of who we are, we are accepted by God. We are dear saints. Right? You are beloved of God. You were created good. 
Sure, we all fall short, but that is not the hypothesis. I think I always think St. Augustine was wrong. He thought that we all had original sin. I think that that is a miscalculation that has affected the church for almost 2,000 years. You're created good, and you were accepted, and you were fine before God. And then within that context, you know, God wants to help us thrive more. God wants to bring systemic justice with dear saints, not dear sinners. And that doesn't excuse us. It doesn't mean that we don't participate in oppressive systems. I know that I do. It doesn't mean we're exempt from personal accountability. It's just that the emphasis on the sin is wider and the focus is more on corporate sin, knowing that many of us have been harmed by the oppression. So I would say this, I'm just saying, by all means, we can use Lent as a church to uh, concentrate on repentance as we head into Easter, but I would do it in the sense of like, let's remember together that we live in a culture under systems of oppression and let's remember how the poor are being cared for. Let's remember how racism and white supremacy has infiltrated pretty much every part of American culture. Let's um, just hold those things before God. And that can sometimes make us feel a little bit helpless. God, I would say in the midst of Lent, let's remember the presence of God, the God who actually came and was embodied, is here with us, right? Is standing with us, who is sitting next to us saying, I'm mad about this too. So just experiencing the comfort and the solidarity um, of Jesus as we head into this season. So with that, we'll have our meditation. And we get to start a little bit late. I think what I mean is instead of having any sanas, I'm just going to leave this column, uh, or not poem, this prayer from Howard Thurman. And it's the one that's part of our Lenten meditation. Open unto me, light from my darkness. Open unto me. Courage for my fear. Open unto me hope for my despair. Open unto me peace for my turmoil. Open unto me joy for my sorrow. Open unto me strength for my weakness. Open unto me wisdom for my confusion. Open unto me forgiveness for my sins. Open unto me tenderness for my toughness. Open unto me love for my hates. Open unto me thyself for myself. Lord, Lord, open unto me. Amen.